fifth episode of the E-Make Cast mini-series, Climate Change and Human Health. My name is Katie, and through the course of eight episodes, I'll be walking you through the many ways that climate change impacts human health. Today, we will focus on air quality. This mini-series is a part of a scholarly project to explore podcasts as a climate change education tool for healthcare professionals. There's a very short survey that I hope you will fill out after listening. It should take no more than a few minutes, and it would be a huge help to the project. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. Every day, humans take an average of 20,000 breaths, resulting in about 10,000 liters of air exchange between the lungs and the outside world. Breathing is one of the most important interactions with our environment. It's unavoidable and it never stops. Because of this intimate and ceaseless interaction, air quality plays a huge role in human health. Increased exposure to air pollution has been associated with increased rates of hospitalization for respiratory and cardiovascular conditions, increased incidence of lung cancer, increased mortality, and reduced life expectancy. When we think about the role that air pollution plays in human health, we are often thinking about three main factors, greenhouse gases, particulate matter, and ground level ozone. In the United States, it's estimated that over half of the population lives in areas where greenhouse gases, particulate matter, and ground level ozone exceed the national ambient quality standards put forth by the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Most of these individuals live in urban areas where anthropogenic activities like motor vehicle transportation, power plants, factories, and other high energy use activities of daily living are abundant. Greenhouse gases are the gases that form a layer in the atmosphere that trap heat, leading to rising surface temperatures of the earth. The most notable of these gases include carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, all of which are a result of human behaviors, also known as anthropogenic activities. Carbon dioxide is naturally released as a part of plant and animal metabolism. However, human activities emit around 3 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere each year. This has resulted in a 40% increase in atmospheric CO2 concentration since the pre-industrial era. The primary cause of CO2 emissions is the burning of fossil fuels. CO2 has been directly associated with inflammation, reduced cognitive capacity, bone demineralization, kidney calcification, and endothelial dysfunction. Methane is another greenhouse gas that can be produced naturally, often in natural chemical reactions in wetland soil. However, today, over 60% of methane comes from anthropogenic sources. It does not last as long in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide does. However, it is more efficient at trapping radiation, which results in increased heat trapping and greenhouse effect. Methane is not usually toxic to humans until it reaches high concentrations, which are not usually seen naturally. Risks of methane exposure are limited to those working with methane gas in enclosed spaces, but methane is still quite harmful to human health via its greenhouse gas effects. Nitrous oxide and sulfur dioxide are both oxidized in the atmosphere to become nitric acid and sulfuric acid. Increasing temperatures speeds up the rate of conversion to the oxidized form of these molecules increasing the potential for acid deposition on the Earth's surface. These acids can be brought back down to the Earth's surface in two ways. First is the wet form, also known as acid rain. The wet form is determined by local precipitation patterns. 
The second is the dry form, as gaseous or aerosolized particles. Over 40% of nitrous oxide released into the atmosphere comes from human activities like agricultural processes and burning fuel. Nitrous oxide can last in the atmosphere for 120 years, and pound for pound, the impact of nitrous oxide is 300 times that of carbon dioxide. Nitrous oxide has been found to be associated with increased hospitalizations for cardiovascular and respiratory disorders, lung cancer, chronic cough, and bronchitis in children, and low birth weight. While sulfur dioxide isn't technically a greenhouse gas, it's also important to mention because it has been associated with increased hospitalizations for similar things, including cardiovascular and respiratory disease, and death. Sulfur dioxide is most prevalent in industrial areas due to coal combustion. Our next culprit for poor air quality is ground-level ozone. There are two types of ozone. Stratospheric ozone, the layer about 10 to 20 miles above the Earth's surface. This layer is known as the good ozone because it acts like a layer of sunscreen for the Earth by blocking out UVB rays. Tropospheric ozone is the layer that occurs at ground level. It's known as the bad ozone because it's the layer that traps the heat. This layer is dependent on temperature, sunlight, and precursor molecules like nitrous oxide and volatile organic compounds. Ozone levels rise during warmer seasons, reaching peak levels during heat waves. Ozone exposure can cause lung inflammation, decreased lung function, and respiratory inflammation, even in people without any underlying pulmonary processes. It has been associated with coughing, throat irritation, chest pain, congestion, inflammation of the lungs, and increased susceptibility to respiratory infections. Additionally, it has been found to be responsible for exacerbations of bronchitis, asthma, and emphysema, resulting in increased medication use, emergency department visits, and hospitalizations. Finally, let's dive into particulate matter. Particulate matter is usually split into three categories based on the size of the particle. There are coarse particles, which are bigger than 2.5 micrometers in diameter, fine particles, which are smaller than 2.5 micrometers in diameter, and ultra-fine particles, which are smaller than 0.1 micrometers. Coarse particles often come from crushing and grinding operations, vehicles traveling on unpaved roads, and wind-blown dust. These coarse particles often deposit in the upper airway because they're too large to travel deeper into the lungs. They're responsible for symptoms like cough, shortness of breath, airway spasm, and asthma-like symptoms. Fine particles are often created during fuel combustion and smoke-producing appliances like wood stoves and fireplaces. Ultrafine particles are created by metal fumes like welding, tobacco smoking, vehicle and power plant emissions, and the engineering of products for microtechnology. Both fine and ultrafine particles can travel deeper into the lungs, causing airway inflammation and edema, which results in decreased pulmonary function. They can also cross the alveolar capillary barrier, getting into the bloodstream, where they can deposit in plaques, resulting in atherosclerosis. In combination, coarse, fine, and ultrafine particles have been found to be associated with increased respiratory symptoms, exacerbation of chronic respiratory diseases, cardiac arrhythmias, increased atherosclerosis, and premature mortality in people with cardiovascular or pulmonary disease. Particulate matter has been found to be responsible for a 4% increased risk of all-cause mortality, 6% increased risk for cardiopulmonary mortality, and 8% increased risk of lung cancer mortality. Globally, ambient particulate matter has been responsible for at least 0.8 million premature deaths and 6.4 million life years lost. While we don't often think of allergies as being a huge contributor to mortality, 
Aero allergens can result in significant adverse health impacts. Aero allergens are tiny substances, like pollens, molds, and other proteins that are present in the air that trigger an allergic response in sensitized individuals. As most people in the Willamette Valley are aware, pollen allergies tend to be seasonal. Plants release pollen during specific times of year following temperature trends. As ambient temperatures have increased, allergy season has started earlier and lasted longer, resulting in increased morbidity from allergic diseases, including asthma, hay fever, and atopic dermatitis. These diseases result in costs of over $18 billion annually in the U.S. alone. Additionally, the prevalence of allergic diseases has increased significantly in the last three to four decades, and currently almost 4.8 million individuals in the U.S. are affected by asthma. Exposure to air pollutants are often higher in urban areas and areas where industrial activities are concentrated, which means that these areas are also the places that will experience the most negative health effects due to climate change. Asthma is a great example of this disparity. Asthma has been linked to climate change and air pollution, and globally the prevalence of asthma is higher in urban areas. The development of childhood asthma, along with exacerbations of existing disease, have been causally linked to traffic-related air pollution. Additionally, as we discussed in this first episode, urban areas are prone to an effect called urban heat islands. These heat islands create the perfect condition for greenhouse gases and ozone to concentrate in the air, which further exacerbate the effects of air pollution on the health of urban dwellers. Climate change and air pollution have both been separately linked to the aggravation of respiratory symptoms. However, the two often work together in a toxic cycle. Climate change and increasing temperatures can increase the amount or concentration of pollutants in the atmosphere. These pollutants can trap heat, which results in increasing atmospheric temperatures. The increasing temperatures result in higher pollutant concentration, which results in the trapping of even more heat, and the cycle continues. Because so much of air pollution is directly related to anthropogenic sources, it's also our responsibility to start shifting our behaviors to mitigate our impact on the air quality around us. This will be heavily dependent on policies that reduce greenhouse gas emissions, such as the use of alternative sources of fuel, like wind and solar energy, locally managed carbon budgets, improved public transportation, and better regulation of industrial emissions. Greenhouse gases can also be reduced by increasing the capacity carbon sinks through mechanisms like reforestation. Green roofs double both as carbon sinks and as a source of insulation to keep buildings cool in the warm summer months. Additionally, green roofs can counteract the urban heat island effect by cooling the surrounding environment and providing canopy cover. Vehicle emissions are responsible for 29% of greenhouse gases, and because they are such a strong contributor, reducing vehicle emissions can do a lot to improve our climate health. Better public transportation options, like buses and trains, can also reduce emissions. But even more useful are forms of active transportation, such as biking and walking. Not everyone has access to safe methods of alternative transportation, so it's important to make sure that there are safe biking and walking routes in all parts of urban areas. The best part of these changes is that they have dual benefit by decreasing anthropogenic contributions to climate change and by improving human health. While I wish that all of these changes could be made, resulting in excellent air quality for everyone all around the world, I don't think that that's a realistic hope right now. Maybe someday, but in the meantime, finding ways to mitigate the impact of poor air quality on human health will be important. Air quality indices have been useful in decreasing the amount of healthcare system use during times of poor air quality. These indices provide advice to people on how to plan their day to avoid excess exposure to air pollutants. 
This can be especially useful for vulnerable populations like children, the elderly, and people with chronic diseases. It can also be useful for people who spend a lot of time outside, like outdoor athletes and laborers. However, to be useful in these populations, it requires that the person be able to follow their recommendation. This might be feasible for the outdoor athlete, but is unfortunately less likely to be an option for an outdoor laborer whose employment depends on them working outside. This is a problem that falls outside of the scope of this podcast, but something to think about while you ponder how to protect your patients from the health impacts of climate change. All right, that is all I have for you for air quality. I hope you found this to be interesting, informative, and useful. Just a reminder that this series is a part of a project to look at the utility of podcasts as climate change education tools for healthcare providers, and I would greatly appreciate if you filled out the survey that is linked in the description. It should only take a minute or two. Thank you so much for listening. Next up, we'll talk about food and water security.